Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Tonight on the world's only rock and roll talk show, it's the eve of the Oscars. Who better to have a conversation with about music and movies than... Roger Ebert. It was a special day. We got to have uh, one of our critical heroes, my colleague at the Sun-Times, down here to talk about what worked and what didn't throughout the history of rock on film. Plus, we've got reviews of the new albums by alternative country goddess and Chicagoan Nico Case and the uh, chart-topping R&B singer Jaheem. But first, as always, we've got some rock and roll news. Man, I can never get enough Sex Pistols. But the uh, the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, has had enough of the Sex Pistols. I would like to point out, there's nothing sweeter, Mr. Cott, than when we're right. When we announced the uh, who would be inducted this year into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it happens March 13th at the uh, snooty Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. We said there's no way the Sex Pistols are going to meekly acquiesce and go along. And, and they haven't. Uh, the inductees this year include Black Sabbath, Blondie, Miles Davis, and Leonard Skinner. The Pistols, you know, we were all surprised to see them uh, announced among the inductees. They have posted on their website a handwritten, hand-scrawled <laughs> venomous letter. And I will quote, I mean, because this is a classic. Next to the Sex Pistols, rock and roll, and that Hall of Fame is a piss stain. <laughs> your museum, urine in wine, we're not coming. We're not your monkey, and so what? Fame at $25,000 if we paid for a table, or $15,000 to squeak up in the gallery. Now, that's not untrue. It, it is, it has, we've talked about this when we've talked about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, how insulting these old doo-wop groups, you know, people who've never made any money but made legends of rock history, have to, like, come up with twenty five grand to go to get inducted, to be honored. Well, I think the, the reality of the situation is that the inductee and uh, a significant other— uh, I think get to go to the banquet. I'm not so sure because I thought I had it's spoken the family, to a significant. I thought I spoke family. to a wife once who couldn't get in. Well, Neil Young walked out of the uh, out of the induction ceremonies. In fact, refused to come uh, about a decade ago when his band Buffalo Springfield was inducted. He said, "Hey, you're charging. You're going to charge me." money to bring my wife and kids to this ceremony, yeah. basically. Uh, Susan Evans, she's the executive director of the Hall of Fame. She had a response, and of course, this is the only response the Hall of Fame could have. Quote, they are being the outrageous punksters. Who uses the <laughs> word punksters? They are, and that's rock and roll. Well, you know, 
That is rock and roll, and good for you, John Lydon, for not going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Spotlight's on Ozzy Osbourne now. <laughs> What's he going to do? Will he be there? And, <laughs> and more importantly, if he's there, will he know he's there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cracker fans are probably wondering what the world needs with two, not one, but two greatest hits by Cracker released on the same day. What the heck is going on here? Why are there two greatest hits albums by Cracker, this multi-million selling band of the last 15 years, being released on the same day? What, what is happening? Their record company, Virgin Records, released a greatest hits album. The band Cracker said, wait a minute, we've got a new album coming out. Why are you releasing a greatest hits album? just before we're about to release our new album. In other words, you're glutting the market with Cracker product, man. Get off our case. Why are we releasing this album now? Cracker, instead of throwing a hissy fit, the band retaliated by recording new versions of its old hits and recording them as Cracker Greatest Hits Redux. I like that idea. The problem here being that they feel that Virgin is no longer treating them like a band on their roster. In Mm. fact, a Tribune reporter, Mark Caro, did a great story on this uh, whole situation uh, last week in the Tribune, uh, called Virgin Records offices and and, and tried to get some information about this controversy. And the publicist there was, Cracker who? Who are you talking about? We have a band named Cracker at our our label? Didn't Billy Corgan say he felt the same way, that Virgin was treating the Smashing Pumpkins the same way at one point? The problem being that these record companies are so decimated, they have so few people left, and certainly any people with uh, what they call institutional memory, people who remember more than like six months ago Mm -hmm. what bands are on the roster, that they have become literally useless to any band that sells less than 10 million records a year. Now, I think Cracker, the band, is getting its vengeance on the record company. The Virgin Records version of Cracker's greatest hits is at 46,000 on the Amazon.com sales ranking, and the Cracker greatest hits redux, the redone versions of their greatest hits, is at 6,000, so it's like 40,000 places ahead (laughs) on Amazon.com. Presumably, Cracker fans own the original albums, right? But one of the curious things here is to hear the band 10 years or more down the road re-record those songs. Even though the record company owns the master tapes, you as an artist continue to own your song, right? Well, you have the right to re-record it, and even that can be restricted by contracts. Apparently, that restriction was expiring, and the band's lawyer was so confident that the band could go in and re-record its hits that he offered to play keyboards on them. That's how confident he was that they were going to be able to win. That's great. This, uh, so, so can we case. go back and re-record our old radio shows and and do better versions of them? I'm not yeah, sure. I don't it, think anybody cares. How could we improve upon <laughs> that? So, Cracker's getting the last laugh. It is uh, its greatest hits redux is outselling the official greatest hits version uh, on Virgin Records. And uh, lo and behold, who knows what's going to happen to this official Cracker record that's supposedly in the pipeline to come out on Virgin Records any month now. <laughs> Oscars week and uh, the Academy Awards are tomorrow night. I can hardly wait. 
certainly uh, one of those. Are you events. having an Oscar party? <laughs> yeah. You didn't invite me. You know what? I have to say, the only thing I'm really interested in is how many music movies are going to win tomorrow night. And we couldn't think of a better person to talk music and movies with than film critic Roger Ebert. He is the rock star of rock stars in the movie critic business, as far as I'm concerned. And I know you share those feelings as well. Absolutely. He's clearly someone we both admire enormously. He's the reason I came to the Sun-Times a decade ago. Roger came down here to Navy Pier at WBEZ the day after the Oscar nominations were announced. And uh, here we are the night before they're going to be handed out in Los Angeles. I've always been waiting to say this, Jim. Pulitzer Prize winning. Movie critic. The first movie critic to ever win a Pulitzer in 1975. (laughs) Uh, Roger, this is such a pleasure for me because I've wanted to do this since we started, Mr. Cott and I started Mm -hmm. doing a radio show. Obviously, uh, somewhat inspired by your 23 years with Gene Siskel. Oh, yeah. And, uh, (laughs) but, you know, more than that, I mean, 15 books and, you know, uh, still, I don't know how you do it. I mean, six, seven, eight, ten reviews a week. (laughs) You know, uh, what is it, 27 years at the Chicago Sun-Times? 39, actually. 39. Oh, my God. And definitely, you know, I mean, two reasons I became a critic, uh, Lester Banks, a great rock writer, Mm -hmm. and your stuff. Definitely the reason I came to Chicago. So this is an honor to have you here. Absolutely. great. Okay, well, thanks a lot. (laughs) Uh, Just yesterday, obviously, once again, Roger's got you know, 3,000 words of analysis on the Oscar nominations in the paper on deadline uh, right after coming back from Sundance. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know how you do it. You didn't sleep, obviously. And, and you know. Uh, That's true, actually. That is- <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cash, you know, both uh, Joachim Phoenix and mm-hmm. Reese Witherspoon nominated for uh, their roles in, yeah. as Johnny and Now, I want to ask wife. you guys something about that movie mm-hmm. because I don't know if I trust my own perceptions. Okay. Actually, as a movie critic, I do not study a movie before I go to see it. I don't look at the trailer. I don't, don't read, read the website, mm-hmm. press releases. I want to go in cold. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Ray was a movie that was uh, dubbed. It was Ray Charles's own voice, and that was probably the right decision because the, the hard thing about that performance was uh, for Jamie Foxx was the, the body language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because try doing Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do it right, it just looks like you're having a fit. You know? <laughs> right, it right. Doesn't, but he did it right. So. Mm-hmm. so I'm going to see Walk the Line, and I close my eyes. And I just want to listen. And I listen and I say, that is Johnny Cash. Mm. That is Johnny Cash. And then at the end, the credits roll up and it says that Joaquin yeah. and Reese did their own vocals. You and I was amazed. I thought he really sounded like Johnny Cash. I hear the train a coming. It's rolling around the bed. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. And time keeps dragging on. The uncanny thing about Joaquin's performance uh, was the facial. Uh, he got those little facial tics yeah. and the little expressions that Cash would have when he would sing down to the point where you're going, you know what, he doesn't really look like him. If you saw you know, Joaquin Phoenix walking down the street, you go, that guy doesn't look anything at all like Johnny Cash. Yeah. But he became, something transformed him and during they kind the of movie, shot during the performance scenes especially. The camera angles were kind of oblique. Yeah. And he was kind of looking down over the side of his nose at the camera sometimes. I mean, a full face. Yeah. He's not uh, Johnny Cash at all. I mean, even apart from the complexion, which which didn't match. But obliquely, they would sometimes be at an angle and a little bit lower, and he'd be kind of looking down with a mic in front of him. And it had a Johnny Cash feeling to it. And after a while, I mean, you know what the real person looks like. But when you go to a biopic, mm-hmm. after about five minutes, you just kind of cave in and say, okay, for the next two hours, this is Johnny Cash. 
I think I said in my review, when Johnny Cash sang a song, it stayed sung. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the director of the film told me that he went to meet uh, Johnny and uh, June at their house because uh, this movie was in production for about six years. Before Cash's death. Yeah, like all of these movies, nobody wanted to make them. Nobody wanted to make Ray. Nobody wanted to mm. make Walk the Line. Then they all get the Oscar nominations. And Johnny told him, I just want to, you to promise me one thing. The guy that plays me, have him hold that guitar like he owns it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. have him hold it like it's a baby. Reading your reviews for so many years, Roger, I feel like rock and roll's in your bones. I mean, you were, you know, you came up in that generation and where rock and roll was like the center of youth culture, I thought, in a lot of ways. You and know, I feel I, like you could have gone either way. Like, you could have written just as eloquently about rock music if well, you Well, you, you to, shared a you birthday know, with Phil. some fellow, uh, what's his uh, name? Paul McCartney. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. that guy in the Paul Beatles. McCartney. The same year, too. The same year and yeah. day, I know. Yeah. As long as there's still a Beatle who's performing, I'm not that old is the way I look there at it. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember standing in the front yard on Washington Street in Urbana with six or seven uh, kids in the neighborhood. For some reason, our street was all boys. There weren't any girls on our street except for the Weaver girls. <laughs> and one of these friends of mine had gone to see Blackboard Jungle. And all he could talk about, all he could talk about, he didn't even care about the movie, it was Rock Around the Clock. Mm. Bill and Held that, in the comments yeah, was the first That was the film. first so-called rock movie. Now, of yeah. course, there have been a lot of black music that was rock and roll before then, but mm. Bill Haley and Rock Around the Clock was really when the genre got its name, rock, instead of rhythm and blues or race music, whatever they called it. And I went to see Bill Haley in the comments uh, in about 1969 here in Chicago in a retro show. Mm-hmm. He still had that little spit curl, <laughs> and they still had the bass player that was twirling the yeah, yeah, upright yeah. bass. Yeah. He yeah. was old to begin with, so he must it have been was, really oh, old by 69. Oh, my God. You know, and it was, but at that time, it was so refreshing. It was so different than um, Perry Como, the McGuire sisters. I mean, you have no idea how. And then, of course, within just a matter of, it seemed like weeks, you had Elvis. And then, of course, Elvis brought along with him everybody who inspired him. And you started hearing people like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and so forth. Given that, Roger, I'd, li- I'd like you to you know, compare you know, your first movie experience to your first rock concert experience. And which was more transforming? Well, what was my first? First of all, I have to tell you that in college I was a folky. Mm-hmm. University of Illinois, the Campus Folk Song Club. In those days, was very important. They had uh, the first campus concert ever given by Flatt & Scruggs. The first wow. campus concert ever given by the Staples Sisters. I grew up really with folk mm-hmm. and wasn't really into rock and roll for a while. And I think that probably the first rock concert I went to might have been something by Dylan, who was by then – The natural path from being a folky. Yeah. Moving he was, into he rock. Was moving, yeah, and that would have been in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. I've been to uh, three or four Stones concerts. And that's about it. I do not go to a lot of concerts. One of the most remarkable things, going back, reading some of your early stuff, you wrote so eloquently about Woodstock, the Woodstock movie, mm-hmm. and called it the greatest uh, rock documentary ever made. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, calling out Dylan, Don't Look Back, widely viewed in the rock community as like, you know, the great document of the great artist at the height of his fame, mm-hmm. spewing venom at everybody. And, oh, look at this guy. He was punk before there was punk rock. And uh, you looking back on this guy and, and saying, what a jerk Bob Dylan was in 1965. <laughs> yeah. You didn't like the person you saw on that movie screen. I didn't. I thought he was putting down defenseless people who were in a position where uh, they didn't have any way to respond to him mm-hmm. or any place to stand. I mean, he was a bully. 
and this is and, and this is at the height of the rock area. You were writing some of this stuff, you know, when the movie came out in '67. Yeah, you look back on it, uh, I think, twenty, thirty years later, and basically concurred that you were right back then to call him out. I um, still didn't like the movie. I mean, I didn't like the deal, and I saw the movie. Then I saw the long uh, three, four-hour documentary by Scorsese. Yeah, and changed my mind. Or at least it uh, refined and developed mm. my opinion about Dylan. Right. It's a much more three-dimensional portrait that includes much more of the entire career mm-hmm. and the entire person. And when you start to think about it, at the time he made Don't Look, uh, uh, Don't Look Back, Don't Look Back, the whole legend of Dylan, the founding legend, all took place before he was 24. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was a kid from Minnesota. Who went to the village, who met Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who met Joan Baez, who wrote some songs, who appeared at a club, and suddenly he was a god. I mean, 24 hours later or a year later, he was on the cover of Time magazine. And how many of us would be able to handle that? I mean, the press conferences that Scorsese shows, people are asking him absurd questions about metaphysics and life and the meaning of things. And he just looks at them as anyone would. I mean, <laughs> I just played some songs. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Dylan. You know, we don't have the Dalai Lama here or the Pope, so we're going to ask you yeah. for the meaning of these theological questions. And he's looking at them like they're crazy. So the Scorsese movie put him in a different context. Yeah, I think anybody looking at Don't Look Back is looking at a jerk. Are you going to see the concert tonight? Are you going to hear it? Okay, you hear and see it, and uh, it's going to happen fast, and you're not going to get it all, and you might even hear the wrong words. You know. And then afterwards, see, I, can't, I won't be able to talk to you afterwards. I got nothing to say about these things I write. I mean, I just write them. I don't nothing to say anything about them. I don't write them for any reason. There's no great message. I mean, if, if you know, you want to tell other people that, go ahead and tell them. But I'm not going to have to answer to it. And they're just going to think, you know, what's this Time magazine telling us? But that, you couldn't care less about that either. You don't know the people that read you. Did you get any flack for that viewpoint? Because yeah. it certainly wasn't shared by I'm a lot still, of your peers. You can go to the uh, Usenet today and look at the news groups and the Dylan groups. I am still, I am still today vilified, being vilified <laughs> for that review. Mm-hmm. And I suppose to some degree my review of the Scorsese documentary corrected that. Actually, you're right because I knew nothing about Dylan except what I saw in the Pinnebaker documentary. And on the basis of that, he is a jerk. Mm-hmm. I think he is. We're going to be right back with more of our conversation with Roger Ebert. His thoughts on The Last Waltz, Woodstock, and Gimme Shelter, some more sacred cows in the rock and roll film business. Also later on in the show, reviews of the new albums by Nico Case and uh, Ghetto Classics by Jaheim. Plus an amazing story about Roger and the Sex Pistols of all people. That's all next at Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. Sleep now, take what you need, you think will last. But whatever you wish to keep, you'd better grab it fast. He understands you often with his gun. Like a fire in the sun Look out, the saints are coming through And it's all over 
blue The highway is for gamblers Better use your sense Take what you have gathered from coincidence We're here with Roger Ebert uh, on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jim Deergatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We've been talking about Dylan's documentary, and a lot of people, like Greg said, consider Don't Look Back the best documentary in rock history. What do you think of the successful ones, and what has worked and what hasn't? First of all, I think Woodstock is one of the great films of all time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Films, period. Yeah. Even with all that weird 16 broken-up screens? Well, I love... You know, it was edited by Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonemacher, Mm -hmm. who later became his editor for every other movie he Mm -hmm. ever made. And it was uh, photographed, it was directed by a man named Mike Wadley, who only made one other film, mm-hmm. and then spent six years trying to make a six-hour epic about George Washington that nobody wanted to produce. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, uh, the first of all, most rock documentaries before Woodstock consisted of one 60-millimeter camera in the front row shooting up the guy's nostrils. <laughs> and what they did with this film, they had many different cameramen. They put the, sh- the shoot together... Um, Bob Maurice was the name of the producer. They put the shoot together very you – know, remember, Woodstock was organized in a very short period of time. Yeah. And so they had to put the production together even in a shorter period of time. They went up there with all of these cameras, not realizing what a phenomenon it was really going to be. They mm-hmm. knew it was going to be a big rock concert, but it turned out to be this great event. Yeah. And they had all of this footage. They had – I'd love to see the outtakes. I'd like to see the deleted mm-hmm. scenes. They have – Complete footage from many different cameras of every single moment on that stage mm-hmm. that took place during that entire period of time, plus all the stuff from the audience, mm-hmm. plus things like Portisan Man. Yeah, and, and helicopter the, shots. The helicopter and shots and the guy who owned the farm yeah. and um, the medics and uh, good morning, people. We're going to have breakfast for half a million people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. And the the split screen stuff, in a way, it was back when widescreen was really widescreen. Mm -hmm. It it allowed them to get in more stuff, even if one shot is Richie Haven singing and the other shot is his foot. Mm. I mean, that's neat together. So it was edited brilliantly. Hmm. And then, of course, came uh, Gimme Shelter. And just a week ago at the Sundance Film Festival, I saw a little nine-minute documentary that was a fascinating documentary. It was called um, – I don't remember the numbers. Mm. So I'm going to say Row 73, Plot 14. And they're introducing a guy who runs a cemetery. And he's walking down the path and saying that he's worked there for 40 years. And then it turns out that they we're going to visit the grave of the young man who was killed at Altamont. Mm. Young African-American. Yeah. They intercut with footage of Gimme Shelter. There he is in his um, green sport coat, as I recall. Mm-hmm. You can't tell by looking at that film exactly what happened. The Hells Angels later said that he was messing with their bikes. Uh, he had a gun and, yeah. yeah. There, was a, there were many different stories. Yeah. So we get to the grave and it's unmarked. No stone. 
Hmm. And then the documentarian uh, continues by saying that nobody really knows anything about him. There were no stories hmm. afterwards about who he was. There were no interviews with his relatives or his parents or his siblings. He was at the Rolling Stones concert. He was killed. And that was it. And here he is on this in hmm. some marked piece of land. Mm-hmm. And so that was really an interesting yeah. little film that somebody would think to make that film. Yeah, for sure. Well, I thought that the Woodstock and Gimme Shelter, those are the bookends. I mean, that's that's the end of the 60s, those two high points. And the fact that those two concerts only followed within six months. Mm-hmm. You know, the hippie ideal, it's all going to be peace, love, and flowers. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, sometimes people are really disgusting. And, and you have, you have Jagger saying what went wrong. I mean, who's fighting what for? Who's fighting and what for? Why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? We don't want to fight. Come on. Do we want... Who wants to fight? Who is it? You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio, and we're talking to legendary film critic Roger Ebert. But what about the pure concert film? I mean, everybody talks about about the Last Waltz. Personally, I hate the Last Waltz. You well, know, and I know what Scorsese. I love Scorsese, yeah. but it just you know everything is shot so that the the performers are iconic, and mm-hmm. we're we're here to worship them. Mm-hmm. And you know, Robbie Robertson's every utterance, you know, is like this man is genius. Mm-hmm. And of course, Dylan and Neil Young, and you know, and it's like, man, what a crock! And I that think, was happening at the same time as punk. I think at the time that Scorsese made the Last Waltz, he was going through. An extremely difficult personal period. Yeah, he and Robbie Robertson were just doing coke twenty four hours. Okay, a day. you you managed to put a, uh, yeah. a word to it. Yeah, well, they they've both written about it, and I think <laughs> yeah, they yeah. they both uh, broken up um, marriages. marriages, and they were living together and and working twenty four seven. I wasn't even going to say coke, but since you brought it up, uh, Scorsese told me that he says, you know, in AA they say you have to hit bottom. <laughs> so well, I was declared dead. In an emergency room, and that—that's bottom. <laughs> that I choose to call that my bottom. Wow! Can you, you know, the that idea? Not that I'm not saying that yeah. he was in AA or not. I'm yeah. just saying that that was, you know. Cisco <gasps> went to visit him during that period, and he was living in a soundproof projection room in the basement of his house, looking at movies. Hmm. Like Cisco never either didn't see any coke or never mentioned any coke in the story. It was just that. He had gone into a movie-watching period, but then Scorsese watches movies constantly anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one rock movie we haven't mentioned is probably the most influential of all, and that's A Hard Day's Night. Right. Richard Lester, incredible. And there's a theme in, in that review. I, I read your review of that movie as well, and I'm, I'm starting to see a pattern here, Roger. The movies that you love, there's a joy that radiates from the performers, David Byrne and Stop Making Sense, mm-hmm. uh, the Woodstock movie, uh, the Beatles movie, which you loved. Uh, and, and you compare, like, some of the, the Jarmish uh, uh, take on Neil Young to, like, watching a bunch of guys surviving a death march. Yeah. And the last <laughs> waltz, he said, these guys are dragging themselves on stage. They don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. They look like they're, they're poop. They look like a band that's, that's coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be, like, that fundamental well, joy, joy is missing. performance. I mean, um, there is a quality that some uh, actors or some singers or some musicians bring to their work. That really transcends, you know, any abstract thing you can say about how good they are. 
And, uh, you know, when A Hard Day's Night was made, it was new to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they're being chased by the girls through the train station, of course, it's a scene. It's not a documentary. It was shot like a documentary, mm-hmm. but it's not. But it was still fairly new to them. When they, you know, crowd into that limousine and they're laughing as the girls are smiling through, it hadn't happened to them um, until the last six months. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they had been absolutely broke in some cellar in Liverpool or off in Germany somewhere, and now suddenly they were tickled to be stars. Yeah. You see them on the kinescopes of the Ed Sullivan show, and it's like they're grinning, like, look, my, I'm on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was a, a newness to it, mm-hmm. a newness to it. And you can uh, help. It. By the time they made help, it was – it was already they, over. They have moved on. I mean, it's amazing. Basically, MTV today would not exist without the kind of quick camera cuts and pacing that, mm-hmm. that, that this guy pioneered in 65. He made a short subject called The uh, Running, Jumping, and Standing Still Film starring um, Spike Mulligan and Peter Sellers. Mm. And it's c- included on the disc of Hard Day's Night. And that movie essentially gave him the style for Hard Day's Night. He decided it's going to be black and white. It's going to be handheld camera. It's going to be shot like a documentary or a mm. newsreel. And it's going to be based on the idea of reality. And when he shot that concert scene, that's shot in the BBC studios at Shepherd's Bush. Mm-hmm. And the Beatles were actually on the stage in the, in the audience, which all seems to be, you know, orgasmic teenage girls. <laughs> yeah. They were in that room. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, the setups were such that at times the Beatles weren't on the stage when they were shooting right, the audience. Right. And there's that young blonde girl who starts to cry in the middle of that film. It's one of the most perfect moments in the history of the cinema. Hmm. And uh, uh, she's just so happy to be there. And then you look at the Beatles mm-hmm. and they're they're singing through their smiles. Mm-hmm. There's another scene, the overhead shot of them running out into the field and just running around, <laughs> yeah. falling yeah, down. Yeah. And that's kind of from the Running, Jumping, and Standing Still film. And it's just like, now we're going to show the Beatles Running, running around. around in the grass and falling down <laughs> and having yeah, fun. Yeah. And, you know, within about another year or two, they would have taken themselves too seriously to yeah. shoot that scene. Yeah. You have two great rock and roll stories that I think illustrate uh, what Greg said. You have rock and roll in your bones. Number one, you wrote what is one of the greatest rock movies of all time. It <laughs> honestly is on my list, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls with Russ Meyer. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, Roger, so when I was uh, a kid in college, there was this huge psychedelic revival in the New York scene. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to The Dive, which was the hub of that club on mm-hmm. 23rd Street, and they would show this movie before the Flesh Tones played or before the Vipers played or or this band that I, I was friends with called The Mod Fun. And everybody would stand there and, and shout the lines of dialogue out, like the Rocky Power Picture Show, this is my happening and it freaks me out, right? <laughs> <laughs> Have some grass. Aunt Susan won't see it. Oh, no thanks, man. In a scene like this, you get a contact high. This is my happening, and it freaks me out. You know, it's this trio of girls who are, are in a band, and they're crossing the country. Mm-hmm. It's got this wonderful day-glow psychedelic insanity. I don't even know if you were aware. I mean, you kind of always shrug when this is brought up, but it is a sacred text among no, many rockers. No, I don't. I don't really shrug. Uh, I think it, uh, it holds up amazingly well. It came out in 1970, mm-hmm. and it is probably seen more today than most other movies that were made in 1970. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, one it's of coming out this year finally best. on DVD. One of the problems is that 20th Century Fox has always been ashamed of it. Hmm. It was one of the top-grossing pictures they ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you look at how much it cost, which is nine hundred thousand mm-hmm. yeah. dollars, which three hundred thousand dollars went to Jacqueline Suzanne. So it was a, mm-hmm. 
even in 1969. Because she sued for the similarity of the title? She sued because uh, my screenplay had uh, reduced her stature as an author, Hmm. and she lost. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, they were they were able to prove in court that she had no stature as an author, or at least none that wasn't enhanced by this. Anyway, <laughs> so it didn't cost very much money, and it made a lot of money. But in the official history of Fox that the studio published, it is not mentioned. Hmm. And that you have there a rare collector's item of the VHS, which is yeah, probably uh, about ten or fifteen years old. Yeah, at least I bought it when when I was watching it in the yeah, and 80s. it's been out of print for a long time. So it's coming out this year for the first time on DVD. All right. And yet, oddly enough, people do seem to know it by heart. Yeah. Well, but you said you didn't even see a rock concert until 70 uh, when you saw Dylan. And yet uh, this movie, obviously, you wrote before, what, 68, 69? Wrote it in the summer of 69. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you consider it a rock and roll movie? We were hired. Russ was hired to make a movie called Beyond the Valley of the Dallas because Fox owned the rights to that title. Hmm. And he called me up. I didn't written some reviews of his movies and we've met a couple of times and we got along fine he said you're the person to write this film we need a person of the younger generation why of course <laughs> you know was probably not the younger generation person he was thinking of but he didn't know yeah we went out there we screened the original film it's about three girls who go to hollywood girls young women yeah <laughs> um they try to break into the movies they have fame but they also uh fall prey to sex drugs the not, evils of hollywood I mean, evils of hollywood we looked at the movie. Neither one of us ever read the book. I said to Russ, well, let's, let's have three girls again. This time, let's make them an all-girl rock trio. And they go to the music world in Hollywood, and they fall prey to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then we put in characters who were based on real people who we didn't know. Mm. For example, Z-Man Barzell is Ronnie Spector. Wow. Mm-hmm. Or Phil Spector. Phil Spector. Phil Spector. He's, yeah. the, he's the transvestite right, right. record right. producer yeah, mogul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's based on Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. We never met Phil Spector. I knew nothing about him except maybe having read an article in Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the stuff in the movie is, is kind of like people say, well, was this inspired by this? Was this inspired by that? Did you go to a lot of wild parties in Hollywood? Did you do that? No. It was all just kind of basing it on things that we only imagined. Hmm. So we, you'd, never, you'd never take an acid? No, I've, I've never taken acid <laughs> to this day. No, no. One, one more artist who proves that you can, you can make psychedelic art without having to take and, psychedelic And as for Roger, Russ Meyer, Russ Meyer yeah. was far, far from being an acid head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Give him a shot of, of Johnny Walker and he was happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sh- double D's and Johnny Walker. I, I'm yeah. doubly Russ shocked happy. because Roger just told us that he, uh, you spent some time in the hate at the height of the uh, – uh, uh, the just drug a, well, not like Gene. Gene Sisko was <laughs> in San Francisco the whole year of 1968. Mm-hmm. I was out there to visit some friends uh, in the summer of 68 and uh, was on the campus of San Francisco State when uh, the National Guard came in, and I saw some of that at a cautious distance. Mm-hmm. I was not one of the guys with the handkerchief wrapped around my nose and, you know— Against the tear against gas. Against the tear gas. No, I was a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say a coward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio, and we are talking to legendary film critic Roger Ebert. I am an antichrist. I am an anarchist. Don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. I want to destroy, possibly, because I want to be anarchist. 
this is the other great piece of rock and roll, Roger Ebert trivia. You wrote a screenplay for a Sex Pistols movie that was never made. That's right. Uh, what happened was um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was playing every Saturday at midnight at the Electric Cinema on Portobello Road in London. It's the oldest cinema in the U.K. And every Saturday night, the Sex Pistols would go to see it. Had been going to see it <laughs> even before they were the Sex Pistols, you know. Yeah. They were just John Lydon and so forth. Yeah. And Malcolm McLaren, their manager. And they thought it was a great movie. And they knew it by heart. So Russ called me up and he said, have you ever heard of the Sex Pistols? And I said, uh, they're a punk rock band from England. What else do you know? I said, that's how much I know. <laughs> I think they got in trouble on the BBC. He says, well, he says, I've got a call here from a guy named Malcolm McLaren. He says he's their manager. They like Beyond the Valley of the Dallas, and they want us to write the Sex Pistols movie. And my guy in England, by which he meant his distributor, who you know probably knew less about rock and roll than, than Russ did, says they're really big. They're really big. So I flew out to L.A. We met with Malcolm McLaren, who turned up in his leather bondage pants. Yeah, been designed <laughs> of course. For him by his by, wife, by Vivian his wife. Westwood. Yes. She had the, she had the, the shop called Sex on yes. King's Road. Mm-hmm. And he had all these buckles and belts, you know, flopping on the floor behind him, ready to be bound at a moment's notice. <laughs> and um, he took us on a crash course through the Sex Pistols. We listened to – they had one album out. Uh, never mind the uh, – Bollocks, I think. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we listened to that. Then we looked at um, uh, footage of them on the BBC and uh, them in concert and uh, anything that, that existed. We got mm-hmm. a big sheaf of newspaper articles. And then we were set loose to, loose to write the screenplay. I checked into the Sunset Marquee where I lived when I wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And McLaren would give me input. And I came up with this idea. Originally, the movie was, was going to be called Anarchy in the UK based mm-hmm. on their song. But then we changed it to Who Who Killed Bambi, which I thought was really a great title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only title better than that I ever wrote for Russ Meyer was uh, The Bra of God. <laughs> that was a good title. So we got in there and started writing. And at the time, there was a lot of publicity about Scientology. Hmm. And uh, they would monitor you uh, with something called the E-meter. And if you went through this whole process, you could become clear. And so I came up with this theory that uh, the uh, Sex Pistols wanted to unleash anarchy upon the U.K. by hitching everybody up to something that we did not call the E-meter because mm-hmm. it would have been – we didn't we never mentioned Scientology. You don't need that, those people on no, your show. No. They're, they're, they're even more litigious than Jacqueline Suzanne. But <laughs> the E-meter that we designed for the movie was like one of these arcade games where you sit in a chair and drive a race car. Mm. You know, and you see the track on the screen in front of you. And it envelops you. Yeah, and so basically you put people into this chair and they're driving along on the E-meter mobile – and it clears their mind, and they become anarchists. It clears them, <laughs> it clears them of conventional politics. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so they were going to take over the society by starting in the amusement arcades. Mm-hmm. And so we wrote the screenplay, and McLaren gave us some input. Mm. He said, why don't you put in a scene where uh, Sid Vicious is in bed with his mother, and they have sex, and then they shoot heroin. <laughs> oh, and I said, well, I don't you think. He says, oh, yeah, that would be good. We gotta, you know. yeah, yeah. So we finished the screenplay. And Russ and I get on a plane to go to London for script conferences, and we meet with Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious separately. Hmm. So Sid is given his pages to read, and you you couldn't imagine. He can't read. Well, I I guess he could read. I mean, he seemed nice enough at that time, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, compared to Sid and Nancy, certainly. Uh, Meyer and I are sitting in the room looking at him, fascinated. As he reads this scene about himself being in bed, having sex with his mother, and then they shoot heroin. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he reads it carefully. He looks up and he says, I don't think my mom will go for the part about the drugs. <laughs> All the rest of it, yeah. <laughs> and Marianne Faithful was signed, by the way, to play Mrs. Vicious. Wow. Oh. That would have been inspired. Then we go out to dinner one night with Johnny Rotten. And he started having a little kind of an attitude, you know, where he would intimidate. He was going to intimidate everyone. And yeah. Russ said, listen, you little twerp. <laughs> we fought the Battle of Britain for you. <laughs> and if you don't shut up and sit down, I'm leaving out some four-letter words, I'm going to fight it all over again right on your head. That's great. And Johnny sat down and he was quiet. And what he didn't realize— Good little Irish Catholic schoolboy well, that he was yeah, at that's heart. that's the whole point. You see, he was Irish, so mm-hmm. the Battle of Britain had nothing to do with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, America did not fight the Battle of Britain for him. Britain yeah, fought Britain the Battle of Britain for <laughs> itself. So, there was some, so anyway, then he starts—then he just relaxes and he starts to complain that Malcolm McLaren had them all hmm. on, a, on a budget of five pounds a week. Yeah. That's all the money they got. And he was living in a squat yeah. over by Portobello Road. And so Russ took him home, Russ and I, in the rented car that Russ had, and we stopped at an all-night store. I remember Russ went in and and bought him six cans of pork and beans and two six-packs <laughs> of Guinness mm-hmm. to keep him going. Yeah. and yeah. that. But then the movie started shooting, and uh, 24 hours later, Malcolm McLaren went broke because Warner Brothers did not sign the deal they were going to sign mm. with the Pistols after their American tour fell through. Right. They shot one day of the movie that had no sex pistols in it. It mm-hmm. was all about the the deer, hmm. Bambi. Never mind. <laughs> I won't even get into that subplot. And uh, then they pulled the plug. Wow. And uh, there was no money, and the movie failed, and yeah. it wasn't made, and that was the end of it. Yeah, the band yeah. basically fell apart on that tour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the, the end of the band and then the end of the movie, which is tragic given have those you, tales. Have you ever published <laughs> the screenplay, Roger? It actually exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's somebody who's writ- writing a book about the pistols, and I gave them a copy of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have the right to publish it. I don't know who owns it. I have no idea who owns mm. it. Oh, you I ran into it. John Lydon at, uh, at Sundance a couple of years ago when they had that documentary about the pistols mm-hmm. that was made by Julian Temple. And, uh, yeah, Filth and the Fury. Mm-hmm. Really good movie. Well, and what did Lydon say to you when you saw him? We didn't actually have uh, – you're going to be disappointed. He didn't have anything very interesting oh, to okay. say. <laughs> but I, you know, I said something like, um, uh, who killed Bambi? And he just turned around because not very many people really know mm-hmm. that title. And I said, uh, I'm Roger Ebert. I wrote that screenplay. I met you with Russ Meyer in London. Hmm. He says, oh, my God. He says, do you remember that dinner we had? And I said, yeah. He says, "Um, that guy was really weird. (laughs) 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 And I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, that's interesting. (laughs) Oh, man. I said, yeah, I remember when he bought you the beer and the pork and beans. And he said, he did? Hmm. And I said, yeah. And he says, well, he says, I'm sure I was glad to have it. Then he used an obscenity. That obscenity, Malcolm McLaren. About McLaren, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never paid us obscenity, obscenity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> managers, rock and roll managers. All right. Every week, Roger, we do a what we call a Desert Island Jukebox, okay. where we pick a record mm-hmm. that we would want to take with us to the proverbial deserted island. Just one record. D- you know, it's at that moment record, in that, at that time. moment in yeah, time. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like the record of all time in your collection or whatever. But is there a record today? If somebody said, hey, Roger, you get to take one CD, one album out of your collection and bring it with you, and everything else has to stay behind. Uh, which would be the one you'd take? This is a game he'd you. never play if we were asking him about the movies, and right. it wouldn't be figures. I have it, but it's so very <laughs> many different kinds of tastes. I oh, almost yeah. just want to say Hank Williams' greatest hit. Uh, there you go. Came in last night at half past ten. 
that baby of mine wouldn't let me in so move it on over move it on over move it on over move it on over move, it on over. move over little dog cause the big dog's moving in I embrace old-fashioned music that you guys probably scorn. Eh, don't be so sure. I love, <laughs> I'm going to shock you, I like the Mills Brothers. Mm-hmm. Do you know that most of the time when you hear instruments on a Mills Brothers record, it's them doing it's them with, with their, their mouth? Voice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? First wow. human beatbox. Cool. That I did they had They had a guitar, and then they did the sax, the trumpet, the trombone themselves. Wow. With their, with their hands and their mouth. No kidding. And it that, sounds, that, that it sounds like there's an orchestra there. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a cool little anecdote. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Long before Bobby McFerrin. Yeah. yeah. But that's, I mean, now you're talking about people. That, I love Laurie Anderson. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, I love um, uh, Liz Fair. Ah, there you go. I think she really, you know, I, I like the way. Last two albums suck, though. Well, but <laughs> I like really. the way that what she writes and how she sings it all comes together into, mm. I'm really talking about this now. I'm really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I'm serious about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like, um, well, I mean, I, I'm my uh, my iTunes library would just drive you nuts. Mm. You would have no idea. It would look as if. Random people had downloaded music into the library. See, there's a great who, magazine feature. What's on Roger's iPod? Yeah, uh, because it looks like the same person could not have downloaded all right. of this stuff. Mm-hmm. We could literally do this all day, but it's Yeah, you know, I've never had half an hour pleasure. pass more quickly. Ah, there you go. <laughs> well, you've given us an hour? Yeah, well, I said a half hour. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Oh, well. Uh, no, thanks, Roger. That was this great. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you guys the time. are... Really smart and really fun to talk to. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Mm -hmm. She'll crawl back to me on her knees. I'll be busy scratching, please. So slide it on over. Sneak it on over, move it on over, move over, good dog, cause a mad dog moving in. You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune, and he's Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. Oh, John the Baptist, oh, John Divine, let the hardest round his life, his meat was locust and honey. That's Nico Case, Chicago's own Nico Case, with a little bit of an acapella intro to a song called John Saw That Number from her fourth full studio album, Fox Confessor, 
brings the flood. Nico's been on the verge of breaking huge for a long time. She is, of course, much loved by the alternative country underground, that whole kind of scene across the United States and in Canada, which is uh, where, where she lived for a long time in Vancouver. She's also a member uh, part-time of the New Pornographers, the kind of power pop superstar indie underground ensemble. There's no such thing as a bad Nico Case album. We're going to give our thoughts about it in a minute, but first we want to hear something from the record. She uh, has a couple of her, her longtime bandmates playing with her, Tom Ray on bass and John Rauhaus on pedal steel, Kelly Hogan, who sings backing with her, as well as some people from Arizona. She lived there for a while, too. Nico, having been out on her own since age 15, has lived all over the place. So she went down to Tucson to record and had some interesting guests, including Howie Gelb of the cult favorite Arizona band Giant Sand, but also Garth Hudson, who uh, used to play in the band, came in and, and played on this. A lot of country gothic numbers, and this is a good example of it. You know, murder ballads are a tried and true, much loved art form in blues and in country. Nico's great at them. This is one of several on this record. Uh, John saw that number, the song we opened with, and Dirty Knife. The song we're playing is called Margaret versus Pauline by Nico Case on Sound Opinions. Everything's so easy for Pauline Everything's so easy for Pauline Ancient strings that feel like speeders Such mild grace, the monument of tacky gold They smooth their hair, the cinnamon way And they placed an ingot in her breast To burn cool and collect it Firm in its cradle And then rolls Of her tender paws to save her Everything's so easy for Pauline Margaret versus Pauline by Nico Case from her new album, Fox Confessor Brings the Flood. A terrific album from Nico Case, and uh, I think her best, which is really saying a lot, because as you mentioned, Jim, I think she's never really made a bad album, and, and certainly many, many good ones. This one tops them all. There's a theme running through this record. You mentioned the gothic murder ballads. That southern gothic thing is definitely a big part of it. She merges it with this idea of centuries-old folk and fairy tales. Yeah. You know, the fanciful title on down, Fox Confessor Brings the Flood. There's a lot of uh, creatures on this record eating smaller, <laughs> more defenseless creatures. Yeah. Uh, you, you get these symbols of the vampires and the wolves and the lions feeding on this prey. 
the world is broken down into prey and predators. And Case is drawn to this subject as sort of a metaphor for the way the world is running right now. She does it with a voice bathed in that sort of subterranean echo, and the accompaniment is terrific. The backing instrumentation on this record creates a mood and an atmosphere that is sustained throughout. But what I really love about this record Case gets a lot of credit for being, well, she's a beautiful woman, she's got a great voice, but people forget, great songwriter also. Sure. And B, this is a record that she produced herself. This is completely her vision. She sees this record as a whole thing, and she created it, and she oversaw the entire project. Not just the singing, not just the uh, the images, but the entire production. This is a Nico Case record from beginning to end, and as a result, I see it really as the peak of her career. Well, yeah, and she's really poised to break through because she's now on this anti-label, which is a uh, subsidiary of Epitaph. Not that Bloodshot didn't do justice by her earlier efforts, but uh, Nico's a woman on the cusp of, of perhaps a superstardom. That having been said, and at the risk of offending Nico, I don't think it's her best album. Now, don't get me wrong. On our, on our patented buy it, burn it, trash it rating scale, it's a buy it record for me. But there are two kinds of Nico case. There's the Tammy Wynette, kind of upbeat, joyful, lust for life mm-hmm. uh, Nico case. And there is the way past Carter family or sadder than Patsy Cline at her saddest Nico case. This is a sad record. This is a darker one, This yeah. is a sad, uh, yeah. sleepy, somber, and very, very dark record. Kind of scares me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's in a dark place, and, uh, you know, psychologically, who knows, do we want to go there, but uh, I She I think seems so happy. Every time she's been on Sound Opinions, she's happy. Th- th- there's also a beauty in the darkness here, too, that I think is really mesmerizing, and I, I just can't get enough of it. So it's, it's a buy it for both of us. That whip off a showcase floor Put TV screens in the hairdress store Something a little more mature Preparing for the future Put the down on something with the fence A roof and a door That is the pride of the 176 Memorial Parkway Homes Public Housing Project in New Brunswick, New Jersey Jaheem Hoagland uh, Otherwise known as Jaheem He's had uh, three best-selling records, the latest of which is Ghetto Classics. And um, Ghetto Classics is the third in what can only be called a trilogy of uh, ghetto ballads. Ghetto Love in 2001, Still Ghetto in 2003, Ghetto Classics in 2006. Debuted at number one on the pop charts. uh, Just just in time for Valentine's Day. Exactly. And uh, don't think that wasn't timed perfectly, because this guy is a between-the-sheets, Valentine's Day kind of guy. He is the successor to Luther Vandross and Teddy Pendergrass in that smoothie R&B sweepstakes. He uh, has this tough ghetto upbringing. His father died when he was very young. His mother died when he was a teenager. He grew up around gangbangers and drug dealers. At the same time, he won a bunch of singing contests in Jersey and uh, blossomed into this amazing singer. He is uh, a guy who, although he has this tough background, prides himself in sort of being a born-again Christian, talking positively about women. He is never the player. He's always getting played in his records, but he's never the player (laughs) abusing women. And uh, he's made a a multi-million-selling career out of singing these kind of very florid ballads combined with this old school sound based on samples on this new record he uh, uses uh, samples from like Willie Hutch Gamble and Huff and combines it with that hip-hop groove 
So he's got the best of both worlds going here. And here's a song where I think he actually breaks ground on this record. It's called Daddy Thing. It's about this notion of the lover coming into a relationship and playing the role of the stepdad, of being the surrogate father for a young child of the woman he's in love with. And then she leaves him to go back with the original father, and and he feels used. He feels like he's being used in this relationship. And it's one of those songs, the complexity of the emotion, underpinned by the beautiful singing, I think is a real step forward for Jaheim on this new record. It's called Daddy Thing on Sound Opinions. Now usually if there's a car seat up in the back seat or a tiny shoe swinging from the rear view, a ring on her head, I could never be her man. But we got so close, blew on my dough in the baby gap school clothes. Pretty little angel in barrettes and bows and a button nose. After a while, started calling me daddy. I should have known that he couldn't last. Should have known that he'd take him right back. I should have took off running when I first saw her coming, but I've never gotten so attacked. When I found her, wasn't there. I was in the pain, but I didn't put upstate. She did it, I was wife's food and baby shoes. Won't you tell me? Just hit and run, but can't you see? I'm about you and your little one. I took the jokes from all of my folks. How I got caught up playing stepdaddy. That's Daddy Thing from Jaheem's third album, Ghetto Classics. You're right, Greg. When you have the Ghetto Trilogy, Ghetto Love, still Ghetto, Ghetto Classics, there's a couple of problems with Jaheem. You know, he is so fond of the Ghetto uh, imagery over and over and over again. But uh, it is really cool to hear an R&B lover man in 2006 saying, I want to wash my lady's feet, you know? <laughs> it's a, a little harder to accept him at his word, knowing what a player he, he is in real life when he's singing, you know, about this woman who played me like a DJ. It's really hard to feel sympathetic because you don't imagine that Jaheem actually gets played all that much by anyone. Right. However, it, it is cool, a song like Daddy Thing, I, I'm with you. You know, especially because it seems to me that R&B is in a divide right now. You have a lot of way overproduced, way too slick, and very, very sexist and often misogynistic r be as personified by Chicago and R. Kelly. And then you have the kind of what's been called natural R&B or neo-soul, a much more natural down-to-earth real sound. Somebody like D'Angelo, who has been sadly missing in action for years now. Jaheem's in the middle. And I think it's not a bad middle ground. I I can't recommend heartily a buy it for this record, but certainly about half of it is well worth burning. The sound is great. The songwriting's picking up. It's not an unconditional buy it. It's it's a burn it. This is an artist who's still on his way up, but the first three records indicate that this guy's got some future hits. So two Burnets from Jim and I. Next week, we've got a great show. We've got Jeff Chang, the author of the Hip Hop Bible, as far as I'm concerned, one of the definitive books about the history of hip hop, Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And we're not going to talk with Jeff so much about the past of hip hop, but the future. What happened in New York and L.A., and why Chicago, why the Dirty South, why are those areas dominating hip hop right now? Absolutely. Plus, we'll catch up with the new solo album, only the third in his career, by David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. We've got some thank yous to say on the way out. Tori 
Here we are going to the south side. Malatia is our executive <laughs> producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel is our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are associate producers. I think their head still hurts from the Rush Desert Island jukebox last week. <laughs> Dino Armiros is our legal assistant. Joe Dassault is our technical assistant. And uh, we'll see you next week on Sound Opinions. 